in baseball, when a batter is slow to get out of the way of a pitch, and he gets hit so he can get on base, or when a catcher blocks home plate to make an out, knowing that he's going to get bowled over by the base runner, or when a fielder goes for a fly ball and bangs against the fence to catch the ball, we usually say he's taken one for the team. We admire a player who's willing to risk injury and who'll endure a little pain for the good of the team. And here in Ezekiel chapter 24, this is what the prophet does for God's people. Oh boy, he takes one for the team. He exposes himself to some severe, tremendous personal loss in order to teach the Jews in exile an important lesson. Well, chapter 24 begins. Again, in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, write down the name of the day, this very day, the king of Babylon started his siege against Jerusalem this very day. Now realize, Ezekiel lived long before television and satellites and the internet. In his day, news traveled by messenger, usually by footman. Ezekiel was sitting in Babylon now, some 900 miles away from the events that were transpiring in Jerusalem. News would not arrive of what was happening by messenger for three more weeks. Yet here Ezekiel is being supernaturally shown by God's Spirit events that were happening simultaneously in Jerusalem. Now recall Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. He was going for the knockout punch. After two prior invasions, he had already had the holy city on the ropes. Three strikes and you're out. Now he's launching his third and his final invasion. Chapter 24 begins with a date. In fact, it was a red-letter date in the history of Jerusalem. Ezekiel gives us the exact date that Nebuchadnezzar began his final siege. On our calendar, the siege began on January the 15th, 588 B.C. The Babylonian army breaches the walls and enters the city 18 months later on July 18th, 586 B.C. And of course, this news was conclusive proof that the false prophets that had been speaking were wrong. They'd been telling the people all was okay, that God would deliver Jerusalem. But in the end, it was the warnings of inevitable judgment trumpeted by Jeremiah and Ezekiel that ended up proving true. Well, he continues verse 3. He tells Ezekiel, And utter a parable to the rebellious house. Again, God assigns to Ezekiel another parable. Remember, he's been a divine actor. He performs multiple spiritual skits. He works out these living parables as a lesson for the people. And then he tells him what to do. And say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Put on a pot, set it on, and also pour water into it. Gather pieces of meat in it, every good piece, the thigh and the shoulder. Fill it with choice cuts. Notice the choice of the flock. Also pile fuel bones under it, make it boil well, and let the cuts simmer in it. Here Ezekiel is literally cooking up a sermon. Now I've eaten some stew that stirred my stomach. But here's a stew designed to stir up the people's hearts. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, woe to the bloody city. You remember what is the bloody city? Jerusalem. To the pot whose scum is in it and whose scum is not gone from it. Bring it out piece by piece on which no lot has fallen. When Ezekiel cooked meats in his pot, the oils and the fats and the blood rose to the surface. The residue was the scum. And of course, scum is a symbol of sin. Ezekiel is illustrating the fact that rebellious Jerusalem is brewing with sin. He says, For her blood is in her midst. 
She set it on top of a rock. She did not pour it on the ground to cover it with dust, that it may raise up fury and take vengeance. I have set her blood on top of a rock, that it may not be covered. Now here, a lesson on Hebrew custom gets helpful. You remember when Cain slew Abel, God asked in Genesis 4 verse 10, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Whenever innocent blood got shed, got spilt, metaphorically speaking, it cried out to God for justice. It cried out to God for Him to take vengeance. There's another verse, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 13. It takes this one step further. When you hunt and kill an animal... You're to pour its blood out on the ground, but then you're to cover the blood with dust. This silences the metaphorical cry, the idea being that no vengeance is required when you're hunting an animal. It's a legitimate killing. Here, though, the blood is still in the pot. Vengeance has not been taken. God is going to set it on top of a rock where all can see that the judgment is about, that he's about to bring on Jerusalem is warranted, that it's just, that it's right. This is not blood that's been covered by the ground or covered by the dust. This is blood that's out there and is exposed and that needs to be judged. Verse 9, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city! I too will make the pyre great. Now a pyre was an ancient form of cremation. A combustible heap of wood and other flammables would all be gathered together, and a corpse was then laid on top. Then the heap was set on fire. And this is what God is going to do to Ezekiel's pot of stew. He is going to stoke the fire hotter and hotter. And of course, this was all symbolic of God's judgment on Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in some hot water, literally. God is hosting a barbecue for the people of the city. The only problem is that they are the brisket. Well, he continues in verse 10. Heap on the wood, kindle the fire, cook the meat well, mix in the spices, and let the cuts be burned up. Then set the pot empty on the coals that it may become hot and its bronze may burn, that its filthiness may be melted in it, that its scum may be consumed. She has grown weary with lies, and her great scum has not gone from her. Let her scum be in the fire, and your filthiness is lewdness. Unless you think that God's judgment is harsh, remember her lewdness. Jerusalem had forsaken God for idols, And then had ignored the law and had participated in sexual perversity with her pagan neighbors. The Jews had definitely acted scummy. I think it behooves us to remember that God sees our sin as scum. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't whitewash it. He doesn't try to cover it over. You want to know how God sees our sin? He sees it as scum. He says, Because I have cleansed you, and you were not cleansed, you will not be cleansed of your filthiness anymore till I have caused my fury to rest upon you. God had tried to cleanse Jerusalem. But like a child who doesn't want a bath, who kind of fights you and refused to be bathed, this city refused to be cleansed. The Jews fought against God. And now it's past time for his cleansing. It's time now for God to unleash his fury. This Hebrew word fury means heat. God is patient. God is long-suffering. But there comes a time when his anger over man's rebellion reaches a boiling point. It has to be poured out. Jerusalem's time has now come. He says, I, the Lord, have spoken it. It shall come to pass, and I will do it. I will not hold back, nor will I spare, nor will I relent. According to your ways and according to your deeds, they will judge you. 
says the Lord God. You get the feeling that God is one who deserves to be feared. At the very least, we need to have a healthy respect of our God. Well, verse 15, it gets heavy for Ezekiel. Also, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes with one stroke. Now, here is where Ezekiel truly takes one for the team. Previously, we, refer, we have referred to Ezekiel as the stunt man of the Bible. He was always acting out these living parables. And God had assigned to Ezekiel some doozies, some strange antics, if you'll recall. You remember he lied on his side for 430 days. He took toy soldiers out into the streets and he played with them in front of the people. He limited his diet to wartime rations. On another occasion, he shaved his head and his beard. But this, by far, is the toughest task yet. God refers to the desire of your eyes. Who is that? Who is the desire of my eyes? Who is the desire of any husband's eyes? It's his wife. That's the desire of our eyes. God refers to the desire of your eyes. That's Mrs. Ezekiel. That's his wife. And God says he's going to take her away with one stroke. The implication is that Ezekiel's otherwise healthy wife is going to suddenly die. And God is about to watch his wife, Judah, die. And as a sign to Jerusalem, Ezekiel's wife is going to die on the very same day that the siege begins. Two deaths are going to occur on the exact same day. What a sermon illustration. Ezekiel is to put God's purpose before his spouse. He is, he is going to watch his wife die as an occasion to teach a lesson to God's people. He's going to put God's purpose and God's plan before his own feelings and his own emotions and his own grief, in fact. Would we do the same? What if God purposed for your spouse to die for some reason? This is where being a prophet of God is not exactly profitable. At least not all the time. Sometimes it gets downright painful. It's easy to serve God when doing so benefits us. But what if serving God requires of us a sacrifice or a personal loss? Would we be willing to put our allegiance to God ahead of even our family affections? What a tough situation for Ezekiel and his wife to endure. You remember in Luke chapter 9, Jesus speaks of a man who approaches him and asks to be his disciple. And he says, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. To be a disciple of Jesus, loyalty to God has to supersede family sentimentality. Reminds me of a man named George Keller in Washington State. An arsonist in the area had done millions of dollars in damage. When the police released a profile of the serial arsonist, George noticed it sounded a lot like his son. He reported his suspicions to the police. And he ended up working with authorities to eventually convict his own son, Paul. At the trial, George was choking back tears when he told a reporter, He's our son and we love him. Support him and pray for him. We will not desert him. But you've got to do what's right. And sometimes as Christians, what's right isn't necessarily comfortable. Wow. Most of the time, Christian discipleship and family devotion, they run hand in hand. But there are moments when we have to choose God or our family. Ezekiel loved his wife, I have no doubt. But he loved God more. And as if this couldn't get any harder for Ezekiel, it does. 
Yet you shall neither mourn nor weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh in silence. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban on your head and put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your lips and do not eat man's bread of sorrow. So I spoke to the people in the morning and at evening my wife died. And the next morning I did as I was commanded. Ezekiel's wife dies unexpectedly. And on top of that, he is told not to mourn. At least not to mourn publicly. He can sigh in silence. He can cry, he can mourn, but not in front of the people. Public rituals that were shows of bereavement were forbidden to Ezekiel. God tells him not to uncover his head, not to take off his sandals, not to eat the food associated with funerals. The modern equivalent of this today would be not to have a wake or a memorial service. Just go about your business as normal, as if nothing had happened, Ezekiel. That's what God tells him. This is tough. And it resembles what God asks of us when he calls us ambassadors for Christ. Did you know as an ambassador for Christ, it's your job to represent God and his feelings, not your own? At times, this involves us suppressing our own feelings. You know, there are times when there are people that I'd really like to lash out at. I'd kind of like to give them a piece of my mind. But I know God is patient and long-suffering towards them. That means I need to shut up. I'm not here to represent my feelings. I'm here to represent God. At other times, there are occasions when I'd love to celebrate. But if God isn't pleased over what's happening, it's wrong for me to party with the culprits. Again, as God's representative, we have to be mindful of what we're communicating by our actions. We have to swallow our emotions at times. We have to exhibit how God feels and how God thinks, not how we feel and how we think. And as Ezekiel said, I did as I was commanded. He's saying a lot in a few words right there, isn't he? Now remember, Ezekiel was a contemporary of Jeremiah. And you remember how Jeremiah was known? You remember what he was called? I've given you a little clue there. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. When Jeremiah was told of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, he cried and he wept. But God tells Ezekiel not to cry. Isn't it interesting? Jeremiah cries. Ezekiel is told not to cry. Jerusalem is receiving her just reward. God doesn't want anyone to assume that his judgment isn't righteous. So Ezekiel, drop your tears. You're not to express any kind of public remorse. It's amazing. It took the approach of both prophets to accurately reveal the heart of God. For on the one hand, the Lord was just and right in all His judgments, as Ezekiel showed. But as Jeremiah exhibited, he was also brokenhearted and grieved over the people's sin. Verse 19 tells us, And the people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things signify to us, that you behave so? Then I answered them, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, your arrogant boast, the desire of your eyes, the delight of your soul, and your sons and daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. Now, to the nation of Judah, the temple had been the desire of their eyes. The Jews loved God's temple perhaps more than they loved God. They thought having the temple made them immune to God's judgment. But like Ezekiel's wife, their wife, their love, the desire of their eyes, their temple is going to be destroyed. And you shall do as I have done You shall not cover your lips, nor eat man's bread of sorrow. Your turbans shall be on your heads, and your sandals on your feet. You shall neither mourn nor weep, but you shall pine away in your iniquities, 
and mourn with one another. When Jerusalem does die, when the temple is destroyed, just as for Ezekiel, there will be no public mourning by the Jews. They won't have the opportunity. They're going to be taken into bondage back to Babylon. Verse 24, Thus Ezekiel is assigned to you, according to all that he has done, you shall do. And when this comes, you shall know that I am the Lord God. God says to his people, Ezekiel is assigned to you. And that really was the theme of Ezekiel's whole life and ministry. He was constantly acting out these skits that were God's signs to the people. He says, And you, son of man, will it not be in the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and their glory, the desire of their eyes, and that on which they set their minds, their sons and their daughters, that on that day one who escapes will come to you to let you hear it with your ears. On that day your mouth will be open to him who has escaped. You shall speak and no longer be mute. Thus you will be assigned to them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Now here, Ezekiel gets another sign. God tells Ezekiel that on the day that Jerusalem falls, he will, and I quote, speak and no longer be mute. The implication is that he is being called by God to be silent until then. Now remember... He was not to speak from the beginning of the siege, the first day of the siege, which was January 15th, 588 B.C. He wasn't to speak again until the siege had ended. It was over on July 18th, 586 B.C. According to Ezekiel 33, verse 21, the prophet didn't get this message until five months later. That means Ezekiel was mute for 23 months. For almost two years, he didn't talk. He didn't prophesy to the people. Apparently, he didn't say anything to anybody. He was required by God to remain silent. And again, this was a sign to God's people. Once the seed started, God had nothing left to say to the Jews. God and Ezekiel went silent. And this, too, is the job of an ambassador in Christ. We speak when God speaks, but we also remain silent when God remains silent. And sometimes our silence speaks louder than our words. When God does open Ezekiel's mouth, it marks a transition in his ministry. Judgment is over and Ezekiel will begin to focus on Judah's glorious restoration. But Judah isn't the only nation that God intends to judge. In chapters 25 through 32, God calls on Ezekiel to now utter judgments against the nations surrounding Judah. Seven nations are mentioned, all Judah's fierce rivals. Ammon, Moab, Edom... The Philistines, Tyre, Sidon, and Egypt. And notice the basis on how each of these nations is judged. They're judged by how they treat the Jews. You said, this is how Jesus tells us the nations are going to be judged in the last days. Remember in Matthew 25, verse 31, he said, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren. And who were Jesus' brothers? The Jews. He says, you did it unto me. This is also in sync with Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when God promised Abraham and his heirs, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. History has confirmed this prophecy. Bless the Jews and you'll be blessed. Hey, in the wreckage of nations, you find people who harbored hatred in their hearts for the Jewish people. Whereas prosperous nations have almost invariably been good to the Jews. Well, these judgments against the nations, they begin in chapter 25. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Now remember, Ammon had a 
treacherous history. He was the offspring of the incest between Lot and his youngest daughter. The Ammonites grew jealous of their Jewish cousins. These were the people east of the Jordan River. Today, the capital of Jordan is Ammon, from which we get this word Ammon. He says to them in verse 3, Say to the Ammonites, Hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, Because you said, Aha, against my sanctuary when it was profane, and against the land of Israel when it was desolate, and against the house of Judah when they went into captivity. Indeed, therefore, I will deliver you as a possession to the men of the east. Hey, it's one thing for God to judge these people, but it's another thing for the Ammonites to look on and laugh at them and mock them and say, Go, God, you get them. God didn't want these pagan nations relishing in His judgment against His own people. He was willing to judge them, but then in turn, He would judge their pagan neighbors as well. And they shall set their encampments among you, these men of the east or the Babylonians, and they'll make their dwellings among you. They shall eat your fruit, and they shall drink your milk, and I will make Rabbah, which was the capital of the Ammonites, a stable for camels, and Ammon a resting place for flocks. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, because you clapped your hands, stamped your feet, and rejoiced in heart with all your disdain for the land of Israel, indeed, therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and give you as plunder to the nations. I will cut you off from the peoples, and I will cause you to perish from the countries. I will destroy you. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Because Ammon took pleasure in God's judgment against Judah and in the destruction of the temple. As Ezekiel puts it, because you clapped your hands and stamped your feet and rejoiced in your heart, Babylon will turn on them as well. Ammon will also be destroyed. Again, it's one thing to judge. It's another thing for you and I to take Pleasure in someone's judgment. Recall in chapter 21, Ezekiel saw Nebuchadnezzar at a fork in the road, trying to decide whether he should march to Jerusalem or to Rabbah, the capital of the Ammonites. At the time, he chose Jerusalem. But according to this prophecy, Rabbah and the Ammonites are now next. He says, thus says the Lord God, because Moab and Seir say, look, the house of Judah is like all the nations. Now, Moab was also a cousin of Judah. Moab was the offspring of Lot's incest with his oldest daughter. This Lot had a bad stretch there. The Moabite Moabite nations settled just northeast of the Dead Sea. And they too were jealous of their Jewish cousins. Notice they say here that Judah is just like a common nation, like all other nations. In other words, they deny the Hebrew nation's unique place in God's plans. And I hope you and I don't make this mistake. God doesn't expect us to give Israel our unequivocal support on every policy decision or every political maneuver. It would be wrong for us to excuse away Israel's crimes or ignore her injustices. But God does want us to always recognize that the Jewish people are dear to His heart. That their nation holds a special place in God's plans for His future kingdom. Hey, God has chosen the Jews. He has from the time of Abraham, and that choice will be evident in the last days as well. Verse 9 tells us, Therefore, behold, I will clear the territory of Moab of cities, of the cities on its frontier, the glory of the country, Beth Jezimoth, Baal Meon, and Kiriathayim. To the men of the east, I will give it as a possession. Again, the men of the east are the Babylonians. Together with the Ammonites, that the Ammonites may not be remembered among the nations. Moab accused Judah of being like all other nations. Thus, God will treat the Moabites exactly the same way. Together with the Ammonites, Moab won't be remembered. They'll disappear as a people. And how many Ammonites or Moabites do you know? 
Not many, huh? He says, and I will execute judgments upon Moab, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Moab too will be judged. Thus says the Lord God, because of what Edom did against the house of Judah by taking vengeance and is greatly offended by avenging itself on them. Now the Edomites, they were descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. They occupied the territory southeast of the Dead Sea, which includes the famous rock city of Petra. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will also stretch out my hand against Edom, cut off man and beast from it, and make it desolate from Teman. Dedan shall fall by the sword. Now, this is an amazing prophecy, given that Edom and its capital of Petra were a very prosperous, they were a very well-fortified nation at the time. And yet here God says that He's going to make it desolate. He says, I will lay my vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel, that they may do in Edom according to my anger and according to my fury, and they shall know my vengeance, says the Lord God. Now here the judgment is not going to come at the hands of the Babylonians, but at the hands of Israel themselves. Ezekiel says that Israel will be, bring God's judgment on Edom. And you can read of this in the writings of the Jewish historian Josephus. In fact, in the apocryphal book, 1 Maccabees chapter 5, verse 3, Judah conquered Edom in 126 B.C. The Jews were led by a priest from a priestly family known as the Maccabees. This priest's name was John Hycranus. And for a short time, Israel was a strong, independent nation who ruled Edom. John Hycranus led this judgment against them. It's amazing. Ezekiel foresaw all of this about 450 years in advance. Verse 15. Thus says the Lord God, because the Philistines dealt vengefully, and took vengeance with a spiteful heart to destroy, and I like this, because of the old hatred. Oh, there was an old hatred between Israel and the Philistines. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines, and I will cut off the Cherethites and destroy the remnant of the seacoast. The Philistines were a people who lived southwest of Judah, in the coastal plain between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean. And here we're told they harbored an old hatred against the Hebrews. You remember the Philistines figure prominently in the Old Testament. They were Israel's arch enemies for 200 years at least. During the time of Samson and Samuel and Saul and David, Israel was in constant conflict with the Philistines. It's interesting because the Philistines are here called Cherethites in verse 16. Some believe that they migrated from the island of Crete in the northern Mediterranean. According to Ezekiel, they still occupy Israel's southern coast at the time that he was alive. And because they had this spiteful heart toward the Jews, God promises to judge them as well. And so not only does God judge his people, but now he's judging these nations around Judah. Verse 17, I will execute great vengeance on them with furious rebukes, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. Notice how God's judgment on all these Gentile nations is designed to prove that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the true God. Again, over and over, he says, so that they shall know that I am the Lord. God is proving His sovereignty, His authority to the Gentile nations. It reminds me of what Paul said of the Gentiles in Romans chapter 1. Although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. They suppressed the truth. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. God had proven Himself to the Gentiles 
over thousands and thousands of years in countless and numerous ways. But they didn't retain God in their knowledge. We're told here they suppressed the truth. And the Philistines were the quintessential example. I mean, think about all that the Philistines had seen. From David's slingshot to the Holy Spirit coming upon Samson. They had seen God's work up close and personal. From Samson to David. And yet they refused to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. In Ezekiel's day, they were at it again. They were rebelling and serving their pagan gods. And God is going to bring judgment on the Philistines as well. And in the last days... God is going to pour out His wrath on the Gentile nations. In fact, all the Gentile nations of the earth. Why? Although they knew God, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. They suppressed the truth. Doesn't that kind of sum up our world today? Though they knew God, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. They suppress the truth. Jesus will return and He will remind the nations of this earth that He is God. He's going to judge this wicked world. Note here the plagues of the great tribulation are called furious rebukes. Furious rebukes in verse 17. God will execute His vengeance and all the world will know that Jesus is Lord and God. In that day, everyone will believe. But for many, 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 it will be too late. Well, chapter 26. And it came to pass in the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, This would be on our calendar, April 23rd, 587 B.C. Less than a year before the fall of Jerusalem. He says, Son of man, because Tyre has said against Jerusalem, Aha, she is broken, who was the gateway of the peoples. Now she is turned over to me. I shall be filled. She is laid waste. Now the next several chapters are Ezekiel's prophecies against the ancient city of Tyre. Actually more than just Tyre. And the king of Tyre. God is going to make some prophetic judgments against uh, even far-reaching principalities. A little history. Tyre was the port of the Phoenicians. It was about 20 miles north of what is today Haifa, Israel. Its ruins are on the coast near the Lebanese-Israeli border. The Phoenicians were the famous sailors of the ancient world. They were known for their expertise in nautical enterprises. They were the ancient mariners. These seafaring people, they sailed and they colonized cities all over the Mediterranean world. In fact, there is evidence that the Phoenicians sailed even as far as the British Isles. I once read a biblical archaeological review article about an inscription that was found in Bat Creek, Tennessee of all places. Bat Creek, Tennessee. Some scholars believe that they found this inscription and that this inscription resembles an ancient Hebrew script. They concluded from that that it was possible that Phoenician or even Hebrew voyagers had made it all the way to the New World. During the reigns of David, Solomon, uh, somewhat thereafter, but particularly David and Solomon, and the Phoenician king Hiram, Israel and Tyre were strong allies. As a matter of fact, the temple was constructed with Lebanese cedar. The logs were floated down the Mediterranean coast from Tyre to Jerusalem. Ultimately, though, the two nations became economic rivals. Their relationship soured. With Judah under siege by the Babylonians, the merchants of Tyre looked on it as a business opportunity to expand their markets. That's why in verse 2 they say, I shall be filled. But God says, no, she is laid waste. 
And just before Jerusalem falls to the Babylonians in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and his armies begin to lay siege to this nearby city of Tyre. Verse 3. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will cause many nations to come up against you as the sea causes its waves to come up. God had tired of Tyre. He had many nations in the offing, offing prepared to come up against her. Remember the principle that we've mentioned in regards to Bible prophecy. God employs this over and over. It's the principle of dual fulfillment. Often biblical prophecy has two fulfillments. It has an immediate fulfillment, but then a long-range fulfillment. And that's what we have here. Notice verse 3 doesn't say Babylon, but it says many nations. There is a portion of this prophecy that was fulfilled during the Babylonian siege of 587 B.C. But there's another part of this prophecy that was fulfilled much later by the famous Greek general Alexander the Great. In fact, God's prophecies concerning Tyre are some of the most provocative and fascinating in all of the Bible. And because they've already been fulfilled, they provide us evidence for the Bible's amazing historical accuracy. Now notice verse 4. And they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. It shall be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. Again, this was a beautiful, a, a, a very elaborate cosmopolitan place, but it's going to be scraped to where it's just the top of a rock. It shall become plunder for the nations. Also her daughter villages, which are in the field, shall be slain by the sword. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses, with chariots, and with horsemen, and an army with many people. He will slay with the sword your daughter villages in the fields. He will heap up a siege mound against you. Build a wall against you and raise a defense against you. He will direct his battering rams against your walls, and with his axes he will break down your towers. Because of the abundance of his horses, their dust will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen, the wagons, and the chariots when he enters your gates, as men enter a city that has been breached. With the hooves of his horses, he will trample all your streets. He will slay your people by the sword, and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. Now, General Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian army lay siege to the city of Tyre for 14 long years. Imagine our city at war, surrounded by hordes of bloodthirsty cutthroats, not for 14 days, or 14 weeks, or 14 months, but for 14 years. The siege of Tyre lasted from 587 to 573 B.C. The Phoenicians were able to hold off the Babylonians because of their nautical capacities. They could receive water and food by sea. Historians tell us that during the last month before the city of Tyre fell, the Phoenicians loaded up all of their wealth onto their ships and they moved it to an island just offshore, about a half mile off the coast. Nebuchadnezzar flattened mainline, mainland Tyre. But it was a hollow victory for him. For he conquered, in essence, an abandoned city. Tyre stayed as Nebuchadnezzar had left it for the next 241 years. But in 332 A.D., another young, ambitious general a king of kings, who at the time was just 19 years old. He launched an attack on the city of Tyre. This was the Greek warrior, Alexander the Great. In the beginning of this siege, Alexander lacked a navy. And so he collected rubble and debris 
from the city and ruins that Nebuchadnezzar had leveled, and he built a causeway 200 feet wide, extending from the shore to the island that was now the city of Tyre. Notice how Ezekiel foretells of Alexander's actions. Verse 4, he says, I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. That was literally fulfilled. He took all of the debris, all of the rubble, and he used it to build this causeway to the island city. Alexander took seven months to finish his causeway. In the meantime, he defeated a few neighboring cities, the coastal towns, which Ezekiel prophesies here. He confiscated their navies. Nebuchadnezzar defeated the coastal city of Tyre, but Alexander, who came later, conquered the island city of Tyre. Verse 12 tells us, They will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. They will lay your stones, your timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. They built the causeway. Nebuchadnezzar conquered Tyre, but he took no spoils or plunder. As far as any economic success was concerned, his 14 years besieging the city was a waste. Alexander, on the other hand, did plunder a prosperous city. The last half of verse 12 describes his battle strategy. He took the debris from the mainland city and he used it to build a bridge out to the island city. Despite constant attacks from the island, Alexander's men prevailed. The spoils of Tyre actually helped Alexander finance his future conquest and really enabled him to rule the world. His victory over Tyre was the victory that catapulted him really to his place in history. Verse 13, I will put an end to the sound of your songs, and the sound of your harp shall be heard no more. I will make you like the top of a rock. You shall be a place for spreading nets, and you shall never be rebuilt. For I, the Lord, have spoken, says the Lord God. This is perhaps the most amazing of Ezekiel's prophecy, that Tyre would never be rebuilt. A city that was once so prosperous would never be re-inhabited, especially when you consider that the ancient site sits over a freshwater spring that pumps about 10 million gallons of drinking water daily into the ocean. I mean, that's a large enough water supply to support a modern city. Despite Tyre's 2,700-year history and all her natural resources, the city was never rebuilt according to the word of Ezekiel and the word of the Lord. It's mind-blowing. There is a modern city called Tyre. It's a fishing village built a few miles down the coast from the ruins of the old city. And still to this day, as Ezekiel said, fishermen there spread and dry their nets on the rocks of the old city. Again, this was predicted in verse 14. And this was all foretold by Ezekiel in 587 B.C., exactly 255 years before Alexander the Great was even born. In his book, Science Speaks, author Peter Stoner, he calculates the odds of these prophecies concerning Tyre coming true by mere chance, by freak accident. By the way, the odds of you dying in a fire are about 1 in 40,000. The odds of you getting hit by a baseball in a Major League Baseball game is about 1 in 3,000. Unless the Braves are at least unless the Braves are at bat, and then it gets even higher because they just don't hit it anymore. 1 in 300,000. Of being struck by lightning is 1 in 2 million, and of winning the state lottery is 1 in 4 million. According to Stoner's book, the odds of Ezekiel's prophecy coming true by accident is 1 in 75 million. And that's a big number. Obviously, a prophetic fulfillment of such detail required an intelligence outside of time. Someone who knows the end from the very beginning. And that's what Bible prophecy is all about. It's proof that the author of the Bible is that intelligence. Ezekiel 26 is tremendous evidence for the Bible's reliability and trustworthiness. And then verse 15 tells us, Thus says the Lord God to Tyre, Will the coastlands not shake at the sound of your fall when the wounded cry, when slaughter is made in the midst of you? Tyre, again, was one of the most prominent cities of its day. 
Its tentacles of influence reached around the globe. What a shock it had to have been for the nations to hear that Tyre had fallen. Her demise sent a powerful message. And then all the princes of the sea will come down from their thrones, lay aside their robes, and take off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling. They will sit on the ground, tremble every moment, and be astonished by you. And they will take up a lamentation for you and say to you, How you have perished, O one inhabited by seafaring men, O renowned city who was strong at sea. She and her inhabitants who caused their terror to be on all her inhabitants. Now the coastlands tremble on the day of your fall. Yes, the coastlands by the sea are troubled at your departure. For thus says the Lord God, When I make you a desolate city like cities that are not inhabited, when I bring the deep upon you, and great waters cover you, then I will bring you down with those who descended to the pit, to the people of old, and I will make you dwell in the lowest part of the earth, in places desolate from antiquity, with those who go down to the pit, so that you may never be inhabited, and I shall establish glory in the land of the living. The Hebrew word translated pit is the word sheol. It was the Hebrew word for hell. The fall of Tyre is going to populate the halls of hell and it's going to bring God glory on earth. Verse 21. And I will make you a terror and you shall be no more. Though you are sought for, you will never be found again, says the Lord God. For decades, modern archaeologists looked for the ruins of the coastal city of Tyre. But because they couldn't find such a site, they concluded that Tyre must have just been a mythical city. That is, until archaeologist Flinders Petrie noticed lumber in the causeway leading from the mainland to the island. He looked down under the water and he saw the, the debris and the lumber and all the, what had been built there to, to get Alexander over. The rubble of the mainland city that everyone had been seeking but couldn't find was right there under their eyes, right under the surface of the water. As God had said in verse 19, when I bring the deep upon you and great waters cover you. And the prophecies concerning Tyre get even more amazing in the chapters that follow, Ezekiel chapters 27 and 28, which will...